Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. inevitable but I think it helps I think in order to take moral responsibility you have to believe that in some degree you have you have control but I actually think that the the, the optimal thing is is not to have too naive and optimistic of your free will if you believe that you have an absolute free will and that you can control everything in your behavior and so forth first of all that's simply not true so you're going to find that that's just not going to work but secondly it's going to make you not sufficiently compassionate to other people as well because when you see other people making mistakes and being less than perfect you're going to think well you know they had the free will to do otherwise it's entirely their fault that they didn't so i think the the kind of belief in free will which is most helpful to becoming good moral and compassionate people is one that tries to always um, take as much responsibility for our own actions as we can, but not one that ever pretends that we can have complete responsibility for everything. If we are not responsible for who we are, how can we be held accountable for what we do? The challenging words of philosopher, writer and editor Julian Pagini from his latest book, Freedom Regained, The Possibility of Free Will, published by Granta Books. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore the concept of free will and personal freedom with one of Britain's most prolific and accessible philosophers, Julian Bagini, and unpack whether the concept of free will is fit for purpose. Yeah, we do We do have agency. And I think what matters is, you know, the thought that, well, could I have done otherwise? Would I have done otherwise? Is that the most important thing? I don't, I don't think so. I think the important thing is that we look at what we've done and we think everything we've done, we've done because, because we've wanted to, because we've chosen to, and, and, and not just we've chosen to or wanted to in an unthinking way, like a child who just sort of like decides one minute they want a ball and the next minute they want a bat, whatever it might be. We have, to a certain extent, reflected on what we want to do and we have thought about our values. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not unthinking. But having done that, we've lived the life that we've wanted to do. And that's enough to make it a life lived through freedom. Even if it's the case that, in a, in a way, there was never any other life we could have lived or would have lived, that's kind of irrelevant. You see what I mean? So it's like, go, go back to the example of, like, take a major commitment, like, you know, to get married or commit yourself to, to a relationship. What makes that meaningful as a free choice is that it's something that you wanted to do and no one forced you to do it. It came from from you, your own desires, and you did it. Actually, it doesn't add anything to that if you say, oh, but it's also important that you could have chosen completely differently. That's not actually what matters. Julian Bagini is the co-founder and editor of The Philosophy magazine and the author of numerous books of philosophy, including The Ego Trick, What Does It Mean to Be You?, 
What's it all about? Philosophy and the meaning of life. And do you think what you think you think? Published by Granta Books. In his latest publication, Freedom Regained, The Possibility of Free Will, Julian writes, The challenges to free will need to be met not by rejecting them wholesale, but by thinking more carefully about what it truly means to be free, rather than what we simply assume it to mean. Julian argues there are myths and illusions surrounding free will, but free will itself is far from illusionary. It is as real as we find ourselves ready to make it. So, does free will exist? What degree of freedom do we really have? And why is free will seen by many as an all or nothing? I'm Julian Bajidi and I'm a writer. Um, I'm a philosopher by training and that's what I tend to write about. And I've written books which I really, I think, try and sort of bring together philosophical ideas in ways that make them relevant and interesting to people who may not be interested in the academic study of philosophy. So I've written books like uh, Freedom Regained on Free Will, The Ego Trick on Personal Identity and The Virtues of the Table on Food and the Good Life. Really well done on the book, Julian. The form is up definitely with this one. It's a smashing read. It's incredibly stimulating. And I have to say, I was sitting on my couch and it brought up lots of different scenarios in my mind and lots of different questions. And I toed and froed with different aspects of free will. And you do that quite cleverly in the book. I might just throw you a bit of a wide open question to kick things off. Do you think we're authors of ourselves? Do you think that's a credible thing to say or do you think that's a load of toss? <laughs> well, the authors of ourselves, I mean, all these metaphors can be useful, but they can be misleading. If by authors of ourselves we mean that we, as it were, start with a, a blank page and can write what we like and there's nothing constraining uh, what we do, then we're not authors of ourselves quite clearly. I mean, and this isn't something that it takes, you know, scary stuff about genes and neuroscience to prove to us. For as long as there have been human beings, people have talked about you know, people taking after their parents, for example. Uh, yes, we've always had the knowledge that we don't come into this world completely blank and that by the time we begin to, as it were, take control of our own lives, we're already pretty well fully formed. But I think there's a sense in which we can nevertheless you know, contribute to that, to that writing. So we're not the sole authors of our lives, if you like. And I think that perhaps one of the challenges of living life in a way which expresses our free will is that, you know, we find ourselves in perhaps, you know, adolescence sort of emerging as people have the potential to contribute to the authoring of our own lives. And what we're trying to do is to do that as as best we can. Well, maybe we could look at it and say that we all have a vision for our lives and then destiny plays a part and then all the other stuff get in the way, whether it's relationship, jobs, family background and all the rest, that they all play a different part or have a different emphasis for different types of people. Now, you quote the philosopher and cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett, who himself has produced quite an extensive range of books, and he describes free will as the most difficult and the most important philosophical problem confronting us today. Today. Do you agree with him on that point or do you think that's a bit hysterical? <laughs> no, I think, I think it's true. It's a very, very tricky one, even when you've really kind of spent a lot of time trying to get it clear in your head. I find you do find yourself toing and, and froing on it. It's important because when we don't believe in free will at all, if we have no sense of belief in free will, then all sorts of things go out the window. I mean, holding people account for what they do, for example, 
or you know believing that we can sort of have any sense of control over ourselves and it's easy to sort of slip into a kind of a fatalism when there's no blame there's no responsibility there's no praise or anything it's difficult because i think to understand free will properly you've got to kind of understand that human beings can be free in an important sense even though we like everything else in the universe is made of physical stuff obeying the laws of physics and we can't just escape from that mm. and act without any kind of prior background so it's a very difficult kind of balancing act how can we be both free and subject to all the laws of nature that trees and birds and flowers are that's what makes it so difficult it's a kind of a mud fight really isn't it <laughs> with <laughs> with moral responsibility how would you describe free will what exactly is it to you is it self responsibility is it being self dependent how do you see it all it's very difficult to give a, sh- a short answer but let me have a go right i think the f- but to begin with the first thing you have to recognize is that free will is a kind of matter of degree it's not something that we kind of magically have or don't have we have f- free will to the extent that we are able to ourselves take control over the direction of our own lives. Now we can never do that in an absolute sense because we're always the products of our upbringing and our background and our our biology. So the idea of pure free will, an ability to choose which is in not in any way constrained by you know, biology or history is an illusion. But quite clearly we can have more or less of that capacity and it's a capacity that typically grows through life. So we recognize, when we're dealing with very young children, we recognize they don't have the same degree of autonomy and self-control as an adult. But what we try and do with praise and blame and even punishment is we try and build in them that capacity to take control of of their own lives. It's a more or less thing rather than either or thing. And it's the capacity to, to be as much in control of our own lives as we can possibly be. What about looking all of this? I know you bring up American neuroscientist Sam Harris, who has looked at rapists and murderers and so on, and has argued that luck is a driver in some aspects. What do you think of all of that? Well, it absolutely is, and we can't deny that. And this is one of the reasons why the issue becomes difficult, because, you know, you look, for example, I, I spoke to a criminal barrister who deals with all sorts of diminished responsibility cases, And, you know, he says, invariably, if you see, for example, a young child who's involved in a very violent crime, invariably, that child themselves has been the victim of terrible abuse and suffering. It's inevitable. So you can't deny the fact that there's a lot of bad luck in creating people who, you know, are, in lots of ways, we'd say, bad. But the point is this. I think we should be able to accept that and understand that and therefore be as compassionate and constructive as possible in the criminal justice system. But except in those cases, very rare cases actually, where someone literally, you know, for some brain defect normally, has no capacity at all to monitor their own behavior, has no empathy at all for our fellow human beings. We always have that capacity to take an individual and to try and treat them in such a way that's going to help them to take more responsibility for what they do and build their responsibility. But absolutely, we, we have to accept the, the element of luck there. And, 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 and people who don't do that, who just sort of like try and imagine that whenever someone does something really bad, it's you know entirely their fault and their background has got nothing to do with it. That's just 
naive. It's completely naive. But if we focus in on luck, that can be dreadfully disconcerting because it makes the world so uncertain and so vulnerable. And you can cop out of any moral responsibility then, winning and all. So it's a very slippery slope, isn't it? Well, it is a slippery slope. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very difficult and troubling to accept that there's so much you know, uncertainty in the world and so much that just could be different. But if we're honest, we know that's true. You know, life and death, the gap between those things can be just a pure bit of bad luck. And similarly, there's a lot of luck involved in, you know, whether we manage to sort of be lucky enough to have good parents or whether of good siblings, friends, whatever it might be. So there's a huge amount of luck. But the point is that accepting that doesn't necessarily mean going down the slippery slope of saying, well, therefore, no one's really responsible for what they do at all. Because, and again, I think just experience shows that that, that can't be right. Because if, if you take, for example, a child who's had a very troubled upbringing or, you know, terrible things like children who have been sort of kidnapped and turned into child soldiers, in the right situation, with the right hand, if, they, if they're lucky enough to get the right people to be treated in the right way, they can become responsible adults like anyone else. The point is that it's ridiculous to think that that's something they can do without any help whatsoever. When someone has been dealt really bad cards by life, we can't expect them necessarily to have that full exercise of of responsibility. Society has to help people to do it. But it's not a given that you're going to have functioning social structures and support systems, whether it's legal aid and support, psychotherapy, counselling, education, reintegration programmes. You know, that's that's all sounds great in in principle, but actually getting governments behind and to support that is not necessarily going to happen. Now, throughout the book, you're arguing that freedom is a matter of degree and not an absolute. Can you tease that out with me? Because I got it to a certain degree and then I kind of got a bit of Confused. Well, okay. Well, I think we can just sort of anybody can think about this. I mean, we can think about it in terms of like you know people who have diminished responsibility, people who have been heavily abused, and and that. But, but think about you are any individual and any normal person. If you think about the struggles you have, if you try to be a good person, you have your own weaknesses, you have your own blind spots, and these are not things which you can just switch off. So, for example, some people have a, a nasty temper, right? And they've had a nasty temper since they can remember. And if you went into it, it's, I don't know, it could be something to do with their upbringing. It might be something else. But the point is, it's ridiculous to think that someone can just decide off their own bat, say, I'm just not going to have this temper anymore. I'm not going to, to do it. So in that sense, they're not responsible for that fundamental character trait of the short temper. But In normal circumstances, what we do expect people to do in that situation is, for example, to learn a bit about whether to act on that temper, how to act on that temper. If it's really bad, we might also expect people to take responsibility by seeking external help if it's available to deal with it. This is an everyday sort of example of how free will isn't all or nothing. We, We all know in our own cases there are things about ourselves that we didn't choose and that we may not like or we may like and they're not easily controlled. But we also know that within that constraint, we always have a certain degree of freedom about what we then do about them. I think that's an everyday example of degrees of freedom. Well, if we look at kind of anger management issues and rage Mm. and how people get into savage form rapidly after a mild degree of provocation, a neuroscientist would argue that your brain is driving that and a geneticist would say that your genes are controlling your life. 
how does that equate with free will to a degree? Because maybe how somebody's brain and genes and how it all pans out in different types of cocktails or different types of combinations would have different effects on different people or family members, if you will. Well, I mean, the thing is, both those things about genes and brains have to be true to a certain extent in the sense that if you don't believe, if you believe we have some kind of immaterial soul, it's different. But if you if you believe that basically the brain is the engine of thought and you believe that genes are, are what set down the basic blueprint of who we are, then it's always true to a certain extent that if you look at any behavior, you can you can look at genes and brains and say, well, that's the fundamental reason. But the point is that's that's deeply misleading in another way, because even people who study the brain will recognize the fact that the brain can be retrained. And, and it can be retrained not by going into the brain and doing surgery, but by thought, action, behavior. It's not all coming up from the bottom. I think that's the problem. When people talk about, oh, the brain did it, people imagine that somehow all the work's going on purely at the level of physical stuff in the brain and bubbling up to the surface in experience. Whereas we know it works the other way around. There's a really nice example of that, actually, which is that if you sort of get people to be more inclined to believe that we don't have free will, it seems they'll be more likely to cheat, right? It's because somehow the belief you don't have free will makes you kind of less likely to sort of believe that morality has any reality and therefore you're more likely to cheat. Well, there's all, obviously all that can be explained described in terms of what's going on in the brain but it's the beliefs which are sort of driving the changes in the behavior it's not all bubbling up from the brain so i think that's the important thing nothing we know about genes and brains proves that it's nonetheless true that thoughts experiences actions and so forth are important in changing and guiding behavior All other love 